Welcome, friends and fiends. This is your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. And I'm here to tell you about an exciting giveaway that Warner Brothers Discovery and Colton Classic Films LLC has put together to build your 4K Ultra HD film collection on digital. We are giving away four codes which contain digital 4K Ultra HD versions of Rebel Without a Cause, Maltese Falcon, and Cool Hand Luke. These are films that you absolutely must know as a film buff. You can get this code by being one of the lucky four people we pull from our newsletter list. So go to coltonclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and give us your email and your name and we'll sign you up for the newsletter and we will enter you in the competition. That's all you got to do. So please go ahead and do that. The contest ends on April 30th and we will send out the winning codes on May 1st. Thank you so much for being a listener. And here's your episode of Colton Classic Films Podcast. Welcome to Colton Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends of the pod, to another episode of Cult and Classic. As always, I'm your host, comedian and film reviewer for hornews.net, Nate Wyckoff. Uh, we have got an awesome, awesome lineup today of both films and reviewers uh with me as always is jeff tucker how you doing today jeff what's up i fart sometimes that's that's well in line with these films i hope you had i'm sure you had a good time and uh with us uh again is uh mandy longley how are you doing mandy i'm good how are you i am good i am good it's always it's always nice to see the the change up of faces and with us again is greg johnson how are you doing my friend uh, doing good, uh, but I just lost the game. So you just lost the game. You know what? It it was over before it started. The game. Uh, okay, I am excited for this. The theme for this week is everybody loves puppets, and I for one adore puppets. I am a puppet aficionado, and um, these are two puppet films which I think I can pretty much guess that most people uh, who watch movies frequently have not seen and probably have not even heard of these films. And I think that's a, a, a damn calumny. We're going we're gonna to look at this. Uh, first up is 1978's film Magic, starring Anthony Hopkins and Anne Margaret. Uh, it's got a crazy good cast. Uh, and then uh, next after that is a super special film here. Uh, it is 2012's puppet feature, It Came From Uranus. Uh, now, this movie, you may have a very hard time locating this movie. I personally uh, located this movie at a Goodwill in New England uh, many years ago. It came out in 2012, so it can't be that many years ago, but a long time ago. Uh, it aired at some festivals. Uh, it is a Canadian work, but uh, we're going to talk about it because I think this needs, to, this needs to reach the nation. Uh, but first, magic. Now... I'm going to unload this plot on you real quick. It's not particularly difficult, I think. Uh, a, a magician card performer um, finds that he can use a puppet of a ventriloquist dummy to build his confidence and use the dummy to connect with people because he does not have much charisma. He becomes really big. Uh, he's going to get a TV deal. And then all of a sudden he backs out because they want to do a, a mental health check and he doesn't want to take it. Why? Because he knows that he is too attached to the puppet and he really can't function without his puppet named Fats. Uh, his name is Corky. The puppet's name is Fats. No one in this movie has a normal name. Um, 
and uh, and he runs away from the city, goes to uh, a his high school crushes family rental property on a lake uh, somewhere in in rural New York, and uh, from there he. I think he's in New York. From there, it kind of goes into a crazy murder, the puppets controlling my life spiral. So I feel like we've seen this kind of story before many times with ventriloquist dummies. Um, they're freaky. This one in particular, I thought was really great. Uh, but what makes this movie especially awesome is the fact that it is directed by well-known actor uh, Richard Attenborough, who died in 2014. But I think most of us will recognize and remember him as uh, the... Uh, as Hammond, the, the funder of Jurassic Park in Jurassic Park. Um, the, the writer is William Goldman, a novelist and a screenwriter um, who wrote a book that this is based on as well as a script. And most people will know his work from the Once and Future King novel, AKA The Princess Bride. So this is a huge departure from The Princess Bride uh, in tone and material, but I think it's equally well wrought. I'm gonna jump right into this, uh, Mandy. What were your expectations going into this movie? Well, there is another movie that I was a fan of when I was like a teenager that starred Anthony Hopkins as a younger person. So I was like, oh, I'm used to what Anthony Hopkins is like as a younger person. And then I, my expectations were just blown. I was like, I don't know what's going on. He looks like a 12 year old boy. Like, so young. <laughs> just I know. So, so young. In so this strange. Um, I, I was expecting more magic, Yeah, right? This show is called Magic. I was expecting more magic. I was expecting more That's true. Mister, misdirection, um, mystery, and I, I was sorely disappointed because it's all just right in your face, like straight ahead the whole time. Because I mean, he does, like yeah, he does sleight of hand, but it's really, the whole movie is not about magic at all. It's mm -hmm. not about magic, the tricks or the illusions. It's not even really about ventriloquism, right? Like he actually, I mean, Fats the Dummy plays a critical role, but he's really more of a background presence a lot of the time. Um, Mr. Greg, what was your expectation going in? Um, you know, I thought it'd be a lot scarier. Um, I I found myself wondering where the music was most of the movie. It was just a lot of <laughs> silence. dead silence, and it, then it was like, oh right, here's a tense scene. Let's throw some atmosphere music in, and like, oh, we we just had thirty minutes of none of that, so why now? And and that's and I think part of the issue too is the poster. There's several posters as there are for most films uh, of this film, but the poster is pretty terrifying. I think it's got um, it's it, most of them feature just. The, the dummy, which is a really, I mean, it looks like a cartoon version of Anthony Hopkins' character in this film. Um, but like, it's just from his upper lip to the top of his head, the dummy, and underneath it says magic, a terrifying love story. And then one of the posters, uh, which is my favorite, has this ridiculous, like, F-level rhyme on top. Abracadabra, I sit on his knee. Presto changeo, and now he is me. Hocus pocus, we take her to bed. Magic is fun, we're dead. There is, that is by far, I've written some bad poetry in my time, <laughs> but that is one of the worst pieces of poetry. And also I'm gonna say it really is not what the movie is. Like there are a couple of lines in there, okay, but it's not it. Um, we'll get into that as well, but that, that, that sort of kicks my ass, that poem. Jeff, what was your expectation going into this film? Well, I think, I think uh, Mandy kind of 
hit the nail on the head there. It's very straightforward. Like basically from the first scene, mm-hmm. uh, I, I feel like you could you basically know how the movie's going to go. Yes. Um, and uh, I think the only reason this works is because it has like really great performances. Fantastic like, performances. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins. Um, uh, you have uh, Mickey, the uh, from uh, yeah, from yeah, Burgess the, Meredith from Rocky plays his agent. Yeah. Um, and he's he's a fantastic. I I, he I wish so good. he was in more stuff. He he was really good in this. This is let's. I just sort of throw this in here. So in in Rocky, Burgess Meredith plays you know Yo, Rocky. You gotta hit him like that guy, right? Like everybody knows him from that role. Um, he is at the top. I think he's at the top of his game in this movie as the agent. But this is the funniest thing because in Rocky three, I think it's Rocky three, uh, where where Rocky fights Mr. T. Uh, Mickey dies. And like you find out he's Jewish, which is hilarious because that's never been even remotely broached or even a thing in um, in Rocky. Yet when I watch this, he is very clearly supposed to be Jewish, and if he's an agent, it's a stereotype. But also his character just he he plays it that way. And I thought that was funny that he's he's Jewish in this film, and he's also Jewish in Rocky, but only when he's dead i thought that that was a strange little parallel um let's kind of i think expectations is a a big thing to look at with this movie because it looks like it's really supposed to be a high tension horror film um probably with a supernatural bent but really it's a psychological drama um and i think that that probably because anthony hopkins doesn't talk much about this movie it's not poorly reviewed in general um i'm not sure exactly when it came out what the uh what it was but i mean it, william goldman got um uh an edgar award which is a uh a, a mist it's one of the highest honors for mystery writers um he got a, a the edgar award for best motion picture screenplay in 1979 for this film so i think that it was recognized that it was it's a well-made film um i think back to when we reviewed cruising and it's you know it's a similar thing right it's kind of a forgotten film or or a, an intentionally pushed aside film but it has a huge pedigree behind it and it's very well made um let's listen to this clip to kind of get the vibe of this film now this is early in the beginning when uh when uh burgess meredith's character has an exec from i think nbc come to uh to see um corky perform in the club nice gimmick the dummy what's his name I will now change a diamond into a heart. I guess the reason I'm such a great lover is, um... You want to hear about your sex life, if you don't mind. Tell us all about yours, then. Everybody likes short stories. (laughs) It's really a clever shtick. All right. Pick a diamond. Huh? I said pick a diamond. Change into our heart while I'm holding it. Oh, go on, show the audience. If you're so great, change it while I'm holding it. You won't give it back to me? <laughs> well, that's another trick you ruined. Let's uh, see, I just have to think of something else. You mean you're not going to change my diamond? Hmm? Jesus Christ. What? It tanged into her heart while I was holding it. 
So that's, it's interesting whenever you have a comedian or some sort of comedic act that's in a film, you have this weird thing where there's two ways to go about it. And one is way harder than the other. Either you as a writer actually craft really good stand up or otherwise material, right? And have them laugh, which is incredible. Any comedian will tell you it's very difficult and it takes a lot of time and trial and error. Or you do things that are mildly clever that clue the audience into, oh, people are supposed to like this. And I kind of got that vibe from this. I think it's on the higher level. Like it's a funny joke, right? Like why don't you talk about your love life? People love short stories. Like it's kind of, it's a, okay, but it's old and it's always, it always intrigues me. And maybe it's because I'm a comedian that uh, we sort of just accept these shorthand notes that, oh, this is funny. This guy, like in the real world, even in 1978, no, no NBC exec would be amazed by this show, right? Like, I just don't think they'd go and they'd be like, uh, fantastic, that, uh, a, a dick joke, that's fantastic. Like, it's just not, it's not gonna fly. I don't know if anybody else noticed that as they're watching it, they're like, I am, they're telling me this and so I'm accepting it, but right yeah. away it's, it's a setup that I'm like, this can't hinge on this. And luckily it really doesn't, that's just a setup. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a common mechanic like what you just described yeah. is, you know, let's tell the audience this person is ugly, even though they're clearly beautiful and we're supposed to then like follow along. And, you know, it, it, that's like, that's like a common thing. Uh, I was kind of like, yeah, I kind of agree. It's like right on the edge here. Um, I thought that the, I thought that his little, you know, ventriloquist act that kind of ran through the whole film was entertaining. Yeah. Um, and I, and you know, partially because I think the voice acting was very good by and Hopkins. I, Hopkins I does the voice of both himself and Fats. Yeah, and it's actually like, it really, it sounds just a little teeny bit like Hopkins. So there's like, mm -hmm. you know, there's like the, a little bit of him in there, but it, mm -hmm. it really does a good job of like throwing his voice yeah. um, and creating like a whole other character. Um, well, and the movements of the puppet are truly my favorite thing about this film, right? Like Fats is, very good, yeah. is a fantastic puppet. Like yeah. his, his eyebrows, his facial expression, the way he's carved, um, his disturbingly human teeth, right? Like everything about him is both, it's not like if you saw him, I don't think anybody would jump off the bus and run down the street, you know what I mean? Like he's not terrifying in that way, but he's too human and too inhuman to be what, comfortable. What I found very disturbing or added to the the disquiet of looking at him is that he very much looks like Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. That he was modeled to look like the actor. So they're almost like twins, but they're very obviously like two different sides of that coin. Mm -hmm. And like seeing something so similar, like you get into that creepy valley a little bit more than I think even with like a normal ventriloquist dummy. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to see the mechanics behind it, you know, because I don't know that he's really if you look at, if you watch a contemporary ventriloquist, there's a bunch of them, but there's only a few that are famous. If you look at Jeff Dunham, like, yes, his, his, his dummy's eyes move and things like that, but they're very limited in their movements. Whereas they definitely make an effort to make fats very expressive. His eyes go in full 360s, up, down, around angles. And it, he be, he felt like a character to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, was, I, I think that they can do that because it's a movie, right? right. It's like the same thing, like, Anthony Hopkins not doing ventriloquism. He's doing a right. recording later. Um, but 
they probably had a full full on puppeteer, you know, with like many That's my assumption, yeah. Many like levers and stuff, like something you couldn't do uh with a single hand on a stage, for example. Um uh, and so you know, even though it wasn't real ventrilo uh, ventriloquism and it wasn't really uh, a like actual like, you know, he was using the puppet. It still worked for me. You know, mm -hmm. it's still like it was like, oh, yeah, this is a really good puppet. I think it works better because <laughs> it was <laughs> yeah, a little yeah. bit better than real life, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, Greg, I jumped over you there. You look like you were going to oh, say no, something. No, you're good. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I bought it for the the pitch meeting of like, oh, like, let's put this guy on Johnny Carson. Won't that be great? Like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like a one-off <laughs> on Carson, no one cares. But I think it it just, it broke me when um, his love interest was really into this. Oh, and, right? And like, he's like flirting with her via the doll <laughs> and like, like, oh, like, hey, toots, like, why don't you take your top off or like whatever he's saying to her. And I'm like, like, okay, I get it. Anthony Hopkins, like, fine, like, good looking guy, but like this puppet right. master, like, no. And this is Anne no. Margaret. Like this is this is the uh the the sex symbol of decades, right? Like all through the 60s into the 70s and 80s. Like this she's a sex symbol and uh and she she doesn't just like fats. She like loses her shit over fats. Yeah. Like when he brings her it brings when when Anthony Hopkins cuz they first meet and he's like i need a room and they pretend like they don't know each other and back in his room he's like she didn't recognize me fats and back in her room she's like he didn't even recognize me and then like he's like ah oh, screw it and he brings him in to the house and she's like you do recommend it. it's this kind of funny moment but then like he, he does some shtick with fats and she like rushes and hugs him and she has to touch the puppet all over and like it's a it's like in um the uh robert redford great gatsby the shirt scene yeah <laughs> they're like pulling the shirts off the shelves and throwing it and it becomes like it's like this parallel to an orgasmic experience without with the puppet sex. with the puppet and it's super intense and over the top like she's manic about it um that, that it was an interesting scene and i think well so i just so my take on that is a little different so i to me that was them creating reinforcement for him being attached to this puppet Sure. Right. It was, it was essentially like, oh, me not enough, but with the puppet I'm enough. You know, you know what I mean? It's just like that, yeah. and it's it's like immediately reinforced by, oh, like now she's excited to, like, see me or whatever. Yeah, that's um, a good bit of foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. I mean, from that angle. Yeah, I mean, we can kind of we know right away as soon as like we see his performance and he meets with Bruce Meredith, which is about 15 minutes into the movie, that. Fats is his confidence, right? It is his charm because the the movie actually opens with him talking to an older man who is his mentor in this you know rundown apartment. In fact, if anybody's seen uh, uh, the Joker, this this is very much in the same vein, although it goes a little bit off the rails at the end. It's like it's a rundown performer. So I mean, he's at least good at what he does. I don't think anybody says that. Um, that, that the Joker character is good at stand-up, uh, but he, he's he's failing, and and he's telling he's lying to his mentor at the beginning. He's like, "Yeah, it went great. My first show went fantastic. I did all the tricks right and everything." And he's like, "Tell me the truth." And he's like, "Well, I I did do all the tricks right, but they couldn't give a shit." Which, by the way, is a comedian. That is 
that was triggering because that is 100% accurate. You're up on stage. You, it doesn't matter if you get 100 right. If there are seven people in the audience, two of them are making out. Uh, one of them is watching you as though she's your mom, but she's not your mom. And you're a little concerned. Like, you're like, please don't do this pity. I'd rather no one look at me at this point. And then there's like four other people having a good time and laughing loudly at your not punchlines because they're not listening to you. That's exactly what it's like being a stand-up comedian 99.9% .9 of the time. Um, and he's doing card tricks, which as impressive as they may be, card tricks on stage is an insane concept that right away i'm like of course it's gonna fail you're on stage what is the shtick right and then well even then, you, yeah. even, even when he um going back when he does it in front of the um the like the producers like yeah it, like oh like like here's my card and like they showed all the way from the back of the room and i'm like what could be could be that <laughs> card <laughs> right it's like actually the entire deck of cards is just you know penises and, and asterisks like there's no it doesn't matter um but so we see that in the beginning and then it turns out he actually it didn't go well because then he flipped out on the audience right he's like you idiots like blah 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 well then it just does this time jump where his mentor is gone and he's actually successful and you see him um start to like do his card tricks and it's failing it's not going well but it's a packed house and then he gets heckled from the back and then he walks back and that's fats that's heckling him and that was a cool moment right because you're seeing this whole like it instantly told us that oh fats is the successful part of him and it's going to be a barrier to him being successful himself you know it helped him get there but he can't get past it that's going to be the, the roadblock you know, um, I almost I almost wish the cover of the movie was just Anthony Hopkins because I really wish I didn't know going in that this was going to be a ventriloquist sketch right. because that reveal was really good. Mm -hmm. Like you, like oh, like there's this heckler. Like I like he's obviously successful now. Who is this heckler? And then to yeah. realize it's him and it's him planting himself. Like yeah. which would be great. Um, and I, I like Burgess Meredith's character. He's like, the reason that magic, because the NBC's guy is like, magic doesn't work. No one wants to see that on TV. He's like, no one wants to see it because the camera can't hide anything. Whereas someone who's using sleight of hand, you're paying attention to something else. It's a misdirect, just like a joke, right? And he's like, the great thing is, is that Fats takes all the attention, the puppet. So he's always the misdirect and it always works even on camera. It's actually a cool theory. I actually liked that idea. Um, they were wise not to try and show that um, in a way because uh, it, it obviously, I don't think, I don't really think in 1978, I don't know, I don't care how good your card tricks are. If you're not physically in person and it's more of a one-on-one -on -one exchange, no one's gonna wanna see that. This is not gonna happen. I also don't, I also don't buy that NBC is booking uh, an R-rated comedian for anything at that time like i mean I, I, it just doesn't i mean i don't think it happens i mean maybe you don't I think uh carson likes sex jokes i do, i don't i i don't and i and he may have liked them but he didn't put them on tv um and i think that that's sort of um i don't get it i i, I guess that was my bridge too far but again it we was like just your r-rated stuff now do a clean set <laughs> exactly it would have been yeah, like yeah. it would have been Wee herman like oh you did an r-rated stage show about a kid show here's here's a kid's show, you know, like, here's a kid's show. And we're going to pretend to be surprised when you get arrested masturbating in a porn theater. Like, that's, that's sort of the setup. Um, but to get to, back to, Anne Margaret does a really good job in this. I will say right now, um, I don't know if anyone else agreed, her makeup artist was hateful for this film. 
um my wife and i were both like i guess those are eyebrows like i don't you know like a, a big pen in, in five minutes can do eyebrows but it's probably not shouldn't do eyebrows um and this is me being a fan of hers since kitten with a whip you know like it's she's a sex symbol she's still very pretty and it's it's she does a very good job of playing the like super thirsty ex you know divorcee even though she's not divorced um who also is like a real person but she's so it, they also i will say was sort of masterful in that they made it believable that she wants him really bad but does she even really want him especially like because we don't actually see them connect that well in my opinion um it's like he well, wants her because he was obsessed with her and she i guess wants him because he wants her right uh, she she wants him because uh after he belligerently <laughs> berates her uh he can i guess guess her card right let's listen <laughs> to this scene i pulled this scene and now i will say this um it's an intense scene and that shows the power of the acting in this movie to create the strongest tension I've had in a movie in a long time over a fucking card trick. Um, here we go. We came close, what the hell? Sirante! Get back down! That was your fault. You started out fine, but then you let me drift. Jesus, Cora, forget it! I was in bad shape in New York, picking ahead of run. Where'd you go when there's no place to go? Go home. Except there was nothing but empty houses and old cemeteries. And I figured I'd stop by here and ask your folks about you. Where were you living? What city? How many kids? Never expected to find you. I've loved you all my goddamn life. I needed a piece of good news about Peggy Ann Snow. Shuffle the goddamn cops! Fast! We're gonna do it right this time. Just knowing you because we both wanted to run. Give me a deck. Take my deck. Spread the cards. Take your card, pick it up, look at it. Put it back on top. No, cut the deck once. Take my deck, look for your card. When you find it, tell me. Look at me. Should I think now? Yes, very hard. I am. You're not. I can tell by your eyes you're not. Well, I'm frightened is why. Nothing to be afraid of. If it goes bad. It won't go bad. Not if two people want something as much as this. There must be nothing in your mind but your card. It's a long clip, but that's my favorite scene in the movie, probably. And the reason is, is because, one, we see his his real character, right, coming out to a point. But also it's a really uncomfortably realistic moment of that sort of overbearing personality where he's like, sit down and he gets really intense. And yeah, you can see she's visibly frightened. And then he's like, why are you frightened? Everything's fine. Just do the thing. And you're like, no, that isn't what you were acting like. Like it isn't okay. You were terrifying. And now you're downplaying that and telling me it's fine. And it's that, that weird, um, that, that weird thing that a lot of times like people in abusive relationships go through, right? Um, and we see that she is probably in some sort of abusive relationship. So it's not shocking that she's cycling into this one potentially, right? And we also, I think it's a good foreshadow of sort of how Fats operates 
with Corky, right? Because Fats sort of, he teases him basically, right? All the time. He doesn't ever tell, like, he doesn't make him in like, do this or I'll kill you. Like, that's not him. It's more insidious. He's like, oh yeah, she'll love the, you know, Pots who plays with a doll. Like, you know, it's that sort of like, he belittles Corky into re into think that reinforcing that feeling that he probably has which is i am worthless and without fats i'm nothing and then he gets him to go along with it and what does he get him to go along with essentially end up killing two people in order to try and and uh get the girl and and really get fats and corky to be alone by themselves right like that's the ultimate goal is fats wants to keep everyone away from the truth of the relationship with him and Corky. Um, I don't know what anybody thought about that dynamic because Corky ostensibly wants to be with his childhood's, you know, uh, a love interest. And, but Fats says no. Fats wants him and Corky to be the only two, the only pair in the group. Um, and I don't know what was the thought process on that for you guys as you were seeing it. I mean, so, I would, oh. yeah, go ahead. No, 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 you first. So I was disappointed that we didn't see more of the development of Fats and where he came from out of Corky. Uh, so was it um, that Corky had this explosive rage or like this alternate side of his personality, which was not socially acceptable and was somehow repressed at some point in his adolescence? Um, seemed like he was shy in the high school flashbacks, but like, who knows um, what was really going on there and um then we see him with his mentor saying like his mentor is like oh well you you should have charmed them like you need to be more charismatic and Corky literally says like I can't use my charm like you know like you know I can't be charming and I wanted to know like well, why why can't like what what's going on with him that he has to repress like basically all of his character um in public and we don't see any of any of that and like why it kind of comes out through fats um mm -hmm. and you could kind of see it's like yeah i don't know like he's battling with himself like does he lose like his like personality side of himself to like be with another person like to be with this woman or has fats really kind of like taken over as like the more dominant part of his personality um like through that year that they worked together on the show or like working to develop the show um and then it's just kind of like you can't give it up. So that was sort of what I saw. I just would have liked to see like more of that year that we lost of him like developing his show and developing right. the character of Fats. It, it is sort of an interesting um, time jump because it's really, it's like a very hard turn where it's like, uh, it almost could have just started at his show at a, you know, at his show when the NBC exec shows up. Like, we, we get this, and I f you find this often in novels turned into films, especially when the novelist is the screenwriter. There's certain things they have, it's like the kill your darlings moment, right? They have a hard time cutting certain things that they see as very important, even if the importance is sort of downplayed in the new medium uh, of film. But in the book, apparently, Corky's character is an alcoholic, um, and I don't know how much that plays in, but we often see alcoholism used as sort of a signifier that someone has demons that lurk, that lash out at, at different times. So that would be interesting to know. Uh, but Greg, you were going to say something about that relationship. Oh, um, I mean, I was going to bring up the, uh, her husband. Um, mm -hmm. I guess I really wanted to, 
to see him as more of just a piece of shit because we see Anthony Hopkins mm-hmm. character as, I mean, you know, psychotic by the end, but when we, and you're like, okay, like, like he's intense and maybe she likes that because whatever reason I'm willing to go along with it for now. Mm-hmm. But then when we get to her husband later on, it seems his greatest sin is, I don't know, he's boring. Like he right. didn't, he didn't, you know, I, I would have, I guess I would have liked to have seen him the husband at the end really fly off the handle and like i don't know choke his wife out or something crazy so that you can kind of rewind and be like okay like yeah hopkins was like came on intense but the character wasn't i guess malicious i don't know like just, an evil person yeah um yeah and, and that and actually sorry no no yeah that, i mean that was just it that um hopkins didn't come off um he came off so wild that you expected the husband to be a monster. Right, right. And and sort of, it's it's more like, because Anne-Margaret's character, who, by the way, has the another ridiculous name in this movie, Peggy Ann Snow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And her husband's name is Duke, um, who was played by Ed Lauder. Ed Lauder, if you look him up, look at his face, you will recognize him. Very prolific. He's been in everything from The Rocketeer to, um, he was in The X-Files a couple times, uh, Seabiscuit. He's been in everything, really. Uh, he has. He actually passed away in 2013, but he still has uh, a movie that hasn't come out yet for for post production. So uh, he's been everywhere. He he plays the husband who does. He does have a moment of rage when he comes home and realizes that his wife has been um, visiting with her her old the guy that that he knew had the hots for her all those time all those years ago. Um, and he throws her on the bed and tries to get her to uh, admit that she had an affair with him. And she claims she doesn't, but she wanted to, which was a good scene. It was sort of a, it reminded me of, um, and of course she did have an affair with 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 Corky, right? Um, but she says, I didn't, but I wanted to. And it reminds me of sort of that surprise scene that causes a lot of emotional turmoil, as in the film adaptation of Cabaret, Uh you know, with Liza with a Z when she's uh, like, I slept with him and her lover looks at her and laughs and goes, so did I. And you're just like, it's that, that woe moment where you expected her to lie and that would be the end of it. And then maybe something would happen with him and um, Corky, but instead there's that extra tag that sort of reveals the literary nature of the script, right? It's, it's an extra bit that a lesser film wouldn't have. I don't know that this film ever reaches the heights that it aims for, but I think that those moments do add something. We also, as you said, he doesn't seem like, you kind of feel bad for her husband, right? Because he takes him, he like forcibly encourages, quote unquote, um, Corky to get on a boat with him. He's like, come on, we're going to go fishing. And, uh, and, and he knows something's up, right? Because he's like, where's, where's Peggy? And he's like, she went into town, said she had a decision to make. You're like, okay, like, that's not we know exactly something like are you gonna kill me and throw me in the river where i where i already killed my agent and threw him and they get in the boat and you literally have the scene where uh duke is like she said you didn't sleep with her and he's like we didn't and then he instead of escalating things he actually just sort of like seems to accept it and then just breaks down and says i don't know what to do i I always, I always failed her and this is failing now and I just don't know what to do. And you're like, oh shit. Like it would have been so much easier and that's why there's tension there, right? If he had been an asshole and then Corky could just kill him 
and you would move on with the next scene, but it doesn't work that way. And although he does end up, you know, trying to kill him or killing him at some point, it's, it's a messy, frustrating thing. Uh, and also they do this interesting thing where the two people that are killed in this film, spoiler alert, I don't know why you're listening to our podcast if, you, if you're not willing to endure spoilers before you watch the movie, but is Hopkins sort of gets away in the first murder by not being the one who killed his agent, right? Uh, or tried to kill his agent because he's literally beating him to death with Fats the puppet, right? Which is a super uncomfortable scene because it's the first time we've seen violence in the film and they don't shy away from showing a sort of realistic bludgeoning of an old man. And it's an old man that we like. Burgess Meredith had got to be the best agent in the world because he's like, I'm gonna get you help. We're gonna bite this thing. Like it's, we're gonna take care of it, okay? And, uh, and you want him to succeed, uh, but you know that it's gonna go horribly wrong and it does. But, but Fats is the one that technically, you know, kill, you know, he thinks kills him, right? And then we get the scene um, where Duke is killed and it's Fats holding the knife, even though it's Anthony Hopkins' hand, it's supposed to be Fats, he's behind him, behind the curtain, you know, so we got this curtain thing going. And so Anthony Hopkins sort of has this thing, his character where, I'm not the one that did these things. And then at the end, Fats is encouraging him to go upstairs and get Peggy to open the door so he can kill her and they can leave and move on. Um, and he can't do it. And I thought it was an interesting play where it felt like what they were trying to do is say, when Fats is there, he can, Fats can do these things, but Corky on his own can't do these things. So it's that the same dynamic we've seen, but turned from a positive or from a negative into a positive, right? Corky's incapable of succeeding on stage without Fats, but in actual life, Fats is gonna ruin things and only Corky can do the right thing. Um, and that right thing turns out to be instead of stabbing Peggy, he stabs himself and he goes back to the cabin and there's that little reveal. I don't think it was particularly shocking at that point, um, but, he's he's dying and i loved that this ventriloquist movie normally like you think of the goosebumps ventriloquist dummy right he's evil all they want to do is get rid of him and he's just a monster uh and that often is the case with the split personality stories like these right um the other personality is the bad one in this it was a much more probably i mean to call any of this psychologically accurate is questionable but it was a more accurate thing right because Fats isn't like, you dirty, rotten piece of shit. I can't believe you killed me as he's dying on the floor. He's like, I don't, I don't want to go alone. Come over here with me. And it's this, you get this insight that like what you were Mandy talking about that you don't get between them. You get the insight into they need each other. Like, and it made me think more about it. It's like, okay, Fats wants Corky to himself also for self-preservation right? Because if Corky goes, then the need for Fats goes. And so they both end up still clinging to each other in the end. It's like the separation anxiety is what causes the tension in the movie and the plot to, to happen. And then ultimately it's resolved by returning to that status quo. They don't overcome that. Um, even though it seems like there's a resolution, the resolution is actually returned to status quo. And I thought that that was an interesting thing for a film to do. And I think it's sort of I actually liked it, but I feel like that's probably part of the reason why the film isn't heavily remembered is because there's no explosive 
outcome um, and resolution that changes things. Instead, it's a resolution that actually returns it to what we saw in the very beginning of the movie, which is a recession from everyone else. I mean, I, 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 I couldn't see another way for the film to end. Like, mm-hmm. I thought that ending was perfect. Like you said, it was very realistic. It was very kind of surprising it didn't have you know the puppet kind of cackling at him or mm-hmm. whatever but on the other hand it's yet another movie where someone has a mental illness and the solution is kill yourself I like, know. <laughs> like just oh yeah, you, you that tried. was very frustrating well, that was that, very that frustrating was, yes and no i mean the, the answer really was like let his agent get him help him right Yes, uh, that's that was re- the real answer. He, I mean, he came up with the wrong answer uh, <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is realistic because a lot of people do end up taking that route, right? Well, yeah, and and sort of let's let's listen to this scene um, where because I liked that the plot points while while nothing even the murders were never like i felt very high energy there was a lot of tension in the movie but i think the biggest amount of tension came in the non-action moments um and one of them was in this scene when uh basically it's when corky's had a really good time with peggy and her husband's not back yet and he returns to his part you know his the little rental house and fats is giving him the business there like what are you gonna do like you're gonna leave you're gonna stay with whatever and he's arguing with him and he's literally screaming at the puppet and the puppet is screaming back and he turns and his and burgess meredith the agent is in the doorway watching him just like and he's not shocked he's just deflated like he looks and he's like i instantly know what's going on and why you don't want to take the psyche val and we have to handle this and he becomes a very strong father figure there which we haven't seen really come into play because we don't know that first character we see his mentor that's not his father uh we know that because of the flashback when he goes to his house um but we also don't know that he's had a father because he sort of has this puppet right who's directing him now so it's sort of like the puppet again is, is threatened by this agent. So let's listen to this scene when he shows up and he's trying to convince Corky to go see doctors. Girls are for down the line, kid. Right now, you, you gotta let me help you. I know a lot of people, beautiful doctors. He means head shrinkers. He just thinks they're a fruitcake. He doesn't, he never said that. He's on our side. He's the villain. Don't forget that. Never forget that. Hey, kid, I'm going to ask you to do something. It's, it's a little something anybody ought to be able to do. Now, if you can do it, fine. We'll forget this whole thing. But if you can't, we'll think about getting you to see somebody fast. Is it a deal? Name it. Make fat shut up for five minutes. That to me was like one of the best scenes because he's asking, I mean, he knows that there's no way Corky's character can do this. He's just seen the actual dynamic between these two. And it is so masterfully played by Burgess Meredith. Like I loved him in Rocky and he's been in so many things, you know, Archie's place. Like he was just, he was also prolific. Um, But this scene he doesn't play a caricature in this movie. He's a stereotype that turns out to be a real person. And those are sometimes some of the best moments because we see something 
as an audience and we fill in all the blanks and we move on. And then when they introduce something new, it doesn't shatter that, but it turns that template that we have into a real person from that 2D picture that we already auto-filled. Um, and that's what he does in the scene. And you just know it's gonna end badly and it gets worse and worse, sort of like the way uh, Duke, the husband, when he's not a terrible person or a, at least a monster, we start to feel bad the fact that he's falling into some dangerous shit. We see in every word out of bird out of the agent's mouth just becomes more and more caring. And you're just like, no, 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 it's gonna get so bad. And it does. It gets terrible. And not only does he, I mean he's the brutality in the film is not over the top, but I it is uncomfortable, right? It's it's disturbingly realistic. I mean, he doesn't just hit him with a puppet a bunch and he's dead he thinks he's dead he tries to drag him out and drown him in the middle of the ocean and then it turns out he's actually still alive and then he has to drown him and then you find out after he very much likely was probably still conscious enough to drag himself to the shore before dying you're just like good god it's so terrible um going going back to the um the hey can you get fats to shut up for five minutes i thought that was such an interesting choice um thinking about the what is it like the 31 questions to make anyone fall in love with you and it's like a series of, of <laughs> yeah. questions back and forth and the last one is stare into each other's eyes mm -hmm. for five minutes and say nothing mm -hmm. and if you've never done that five minutes is a long long so time long. and i think that that's kind of funny that parallel of he can't do it and you know not that he's going to fall in love with his agent but that him and his agent aren't fundamentally compatible right yet yeah, that's a brilliant brilliant comparison and it was painful because he doesn't just they don't just sit there for a few seconds and he's like no. i can't do it he's <laughs> like are we gonna sit in silence how long has it been and he's like 48 seconds and he's like and then he just waits and he does another thing and he's like and then i loved that moment i mean anthony hopkins this film reminded me why he's a master because frankly i haven't given a shit about a lot of the work he's done contemporary in the contemporary films and i don't think he does either it's like he, he was asked in an interview i think a few years ago oh did you watch trans you know the new transformers film you're in and he goes no no i haven't watched any of them i don't watch transformers and it's and it's like i mean and i have I have nothing against all the Transformers films. In fact, I'm wearing a Transformers shirt right now, unintentional. But they're not great movies from a, a storytelling standpoint. There's many, many benefits of certain films. That is not one of them. It's a spectacle movie. There you go. There is no reason for Anthony Hopkins' character or Anthony Hopkins, the actor, to be in those films. But this movie benefited radically from Anthony Hopkins because his delivery is intentional. It's very strong. And... It just comes out in these scenes, like during the, the five minute silence, it doesn't just say, screw this, this is stupid. He looks at Burgess Meredith and he says, I can't do it. Like it's this, it's, it's, it's an acknowledgement, this honest, brutal, painful acknowledgement. And it was like, it's like a moment that we would see in a film about a therapist having a breakthrough with a, a serial killer or someone whose father was abusive. You know what I mean? Like it's this really tearful, heart-wrenching moment. And I love what you said, Greg, about the compatibility. It is sort of like, because it is really kind of a love triangle, right? Like in these films, like we have, and most ventriloquist movies come to this, right? Which is there is a, a triangle that can't sustain itself because there's the puppet and the ventriloquist and the ventriloquist and the other woman. 
And that's what, what happens there. Um, I think I personally really enjoy this movie, but it does have, I, I wonder, Greg, when you said there's no music or there's very little music for most of it, I wonder if it's because the film itself feels so understated. It almost, it wants you to sit with tension, but it really, I feel like it didn't want you to get too attached to anyone. Am I the only one that felt that way? Like I was most attached probably to the agent because of his kindness, but everyone else, I'm definitely an observer. I'm not living in this film. Or that like, you know, no one had a theme song. They didn't try and tell you, here's the tense moment. <laughs> right. It's true. Um, like no one was very likable. Yeah. <laughs> everyone was damaged. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and that's, it sort of goes back to that idea where I was like, Peggy, Peggy Ann Snow, she doesn't want, I mean, it doesn't seem necessarily like she really wants Corky particularly. She wants someone who adores her again and treats her like the high school beauty that she was. Um, and, uh, and for people oh, who are, yeah. And speaking of the high school thing, did anyone else notice she said something like they graduated 15 years before, but everyone looked like 40 years old? <laughs> Was that like a really weird moment yeah, for everybody else? for sure. No, it was. And also, she looked older than him to me. And, and, that's, and that mm -hmm. could be a socialized thing, but she did. And I, and I, I think, I mean, I, I, I think uh, she was born in 41, and uh, Hopkins was, was born in, in 37. So clearly, it's not the case. Um, but I, I want to say it was sort of maybe the styling, uh, because he also dressed kind of like a boy. Um, he had like yeah. Argyle sweaters and like kind of doofy polo shirts. Um, and she dressed like someone who's frankly lives on a farm and has sort of given up. Um, she dressed very dowdy for most of it. And, uh, I, and also if anyone's interested in this, Anne Margaret is topless for one scene. It's not a big scene, uh, but I feel like cult films, we always get to that moment where Anne Margaret did a topless scene when she was, you know, in her in almost four and again she wasn't even that old right when this came out she was like 37 i'm 36 for god's sakes um but i also i do feel like it was a little surprising because how many actresses do we know right now especially really successful actresses who when they're almost 40 years old are doing a topless scene i think that when you get a film like this that's pretty highbrow um people do things for the script because it's a realistic natural moment you know she doesn't step out of the shower and trip and her towel falls <laughs> off you know it's not this isn't a, a, this isn't an anime moment right it's just they're both in bed um also uh anthony hopkins but so enjoy uh, yeah but uh we didn't see fats naked so what's we the point didn't. we did see him without hair oh um, that's true and, and i thought that was interesting and i also thought that he has a bandage under his head when he's used to bludgeon the agent and i thought that that was a fascinating thing because he has the head wound <laughs> and and he has to cover it up with a cap and then a weird moment right after that when uh when the husband duke takes corky out on the boat um duke is wearing like the identical but man-sized cap that fats wears to cover the bandage this little like woven blue cap and i just I, it was just too weird in a film this with this larger budget and stuff, there's no way the costumer did not see that or the prop master or somebody did not understand that, which made me try and find parallels. And I don't know that I really, I don't know that I did except that it's like at that moment, both the husband and fats are the two equal barriers to Corky being with Peggy. 
right? Like Fats doesn't want it to happen. Duke doesn't want it to happen. And both of them are now wearing this similar outfit. Uh, I thought that was interesting. It wasn't explored. Um, but can we just talk about how fucking cool and terrifying Fats sitting at the window looking out at all of the scenes mm-hmm. that involve murder or potential murder? Like that that's crazy because that means that that means that Corky had to literally take the puppet, put him by the window, angle him so he's looking out the window to watch him drag his agent's dead body to the middle of the river. Like those moments were just, I loved him. And he does the same thing. He's looking out the window at the boat when, you know, Duke and Corky go on the boat. And it's just, uh, and, and he goes in, said, I'm going to get my jacket. But we also know that probably he went in to put Fats at the window because Fats wasn't at the window before. So mm-hmm. it's this really crazy, crazy little things in this film that uh, are worth thinking about. And so, so we're, we're going over time a little bit on this. Yeah. So I, we're going to wrap this up um, and I'll, I'll leave uh, our listeners on this film with the question that we always ask, uh, who would you recommend this film to and why? Mandy, let's start with you. Oh, you started with me before and I'm still not prepared. Um, you would think that I would know by now. Trying to, give, <laughs> just, trying to give you a redemption moment. It's not happening. Right? <laughs> and I, I totally failed. Um, I don't know. I guess if you want to see what uh, Anthony Hopkins looked like as a younger man, he looked very much younger in this. Um, see him really practicing his craft um, before, you know, like Silence of the Lambs or something like that. Like, check this out. Um, it's interesting. It's not particularly complex. Um, you probably have a lot of your expectations fall flat, but, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting piece. So, you know, check it out. And just, as you mentioned that, that we've mentioned the acting several times, this is a movie that, uh, went through a lot of different changes. At one point Spielberg was talking, uh, to direct the film and wanted, uh, De Niro to play Corky. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and then Norman Jewison, who is uh, uh, another great director, was originally signed on uh, when the first draft was put out. He wanted Jack Nicholson a star, but Nicholas said he wouldn't do it because he didn't want to wear a hairpiece. Um, which makes me wonder, because it is kind of a weird thing, does... does... I, read an, I read another thing. They said that that was not true. So okay. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, um, who knows? But... Uh, but... Uh, but Richard Attenberger was a great director for this. And I mean, he just made A Bridge Too Far, which is another excellent film. So um, Laurence Olivier was uh, going to be in Burgess Meredith's role, which fantastic actor. It, it would have prob- I could I cannot imagine him in that role. So I don't think that anybody could have done it other than Burgess Meredith for me in that role. I think it would have changed the dynamic of the role hugely. Um, Jeff. So the thing I would oh, have sorry. liked to see, just one more second, mm-hmm. speaking of, like, I didn't know we were going to go into all this, but I saw that Gene Wilder had been approached to play Anthony Hopkins' part, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of discussion about having a comedian in that part, and the producers yeah. didn't want a comedian because they wanted it to be serious, but not understanding how a comedian would have added additional depth to that whole character right. dynamic. Uh, I would have loved to see that movie. You know, like, <laughs> I would have liked to see it too because I would love to see Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder is fantastic. I wonder because I think I wonder if the reasoning was is that Gene Wilder I feel like has a very hard time not being engaging and charismatic, or at least one or the other. Because um, I feel like Hopkins did a good job of being very uncharismatic in this film. Um, 
I didn't particularly find myself attracted to any aspect of him, right? He didn't look good. Uh, he didn't present himself well. He was very mousy. But Gene Wilder certainly would have, this could have been the cable guy of the 70s, right? Like this, the terrifying comedy that, that, uh, that personally I love. Uh, but oh, interesting, good take, I like it. All right, Jeff, who would you recommend this movie to and why, or are you gonna rewrite it? All right, I'm gonna do both because ah. you, you knew it was coming. I did. And I let other people speak, but I had a lot to say. Uh, I'm gonna say it now. <laughs> so here, here's the thing. So you have this character who's, you know, very anxious uh, socially uh, and to the point where it gets to the point he can't he can't even go without his shield for five minutes in this uncomfortable moment with his agent right so this is this is this uh like really interesting character to me and i and i like that bit of it but what they i think they failed to do was this really was a psychological drama like you mentioned in the beginning i think i've seen it build a couple times as a like a psychological horror film and i think it should have been and, and here's why. So uh, you have this kind of uh, like really good ping pong effect. I've mentioned this before, where you go back and forth between two ideas, right? Uh, in this case, they, they, they like kind of flirted with it a little bit, but never to the point where they tried to make this anything remotely close to a horror film. But you could have really played off uh, this uh, Fats character as like, you know, some supernatural being that's, like, really taking control of Corky. Uh, and they kind of play, like, they, they, they flirt with it when, they, you know, there's the curtain and Fats is in front of the curtain. Uh, and, it, you know, if you don't notice there's a curtain, you're, you're kind of like, oh, well, he's alone and he's moving. So, like, you know, there's something going on here. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he's, uh, he's autonomous now. Um, but and this is this is, i think would be the interesting thing that they could have done is they could have really just get rid of the curtain the dude's a magician right like here's the magic that you put into the film like he he goes into some sort of like elaborate complex methodology of doing like a magic trick essentially of murdering these people with fats right um or you know not like we don't know at the time right mm -hmm. is is he, is anthony hopkins character is nowhere in the scene when these people are murdered and so we have to keep questioning ourselves, oh, is this puppet actually like autonomous and like a character? Or is it just the, uh, this second personality of Porky? Um, and you kind of keep going back and forth between those, those yeah. ideas. And then you create the psychological horror. It's like, oh, is, it, is he crazy? Or is this a murder uh, puppet? Um, and then you end with like, you know, you, you kind of start to reveal like how he did these magic tricks. Uh, you know, he does kind of this elaborate illusion essentially to make it seem like Fats is alone and Corky had absolutely nothing to do with the murder rather than him just standing behind a curtain. Like right. maybe he uses um, like, you know, uh, pulleys or time things or, you know, just stuff. Always right? the does... engineer. Yeah, he does some sort of magic trick, right? Like some elaborate illusion to, to, to do these murders. Um, and then at the end, um, you know, he comes to like face to face with, you know, it was him all along. You know what I mean? Um, kind of that, that literally exact same dialogue that they actually do use at the end of this film. Um, but I think that would have, I think that would have put this movie just up that extra notch. 
um, it would have really uh, kind of kept your mind going throughout kind of the slower bits of the film. Um, and it would have, uh, uh, you know, would have had like a more surprise ending rather than being just straightforward and ahead. Um, and uh, it would have been a different film. It would have been I, a different film. I, sure. I would like to see that film, but yeah. I've, I wonder my, I wonder if like, is, is there enough in this film to make that this film or would it just be a brand new, completely different film? But I don't know. I, I mean, I think that like, you know, he, I, they just didn't put any effort into him uh, obfuscating the fact that he was murdering. That was, right. that was kind of right. the thing, right? They Although, could have just put like an extra, like three or four layers in yeah. there. For sure. To make it because really we know it's him, right? We know very early on that yeah, there, the, the, the puppet is not autonomous at all. <laughs> That's um, correct. And I did like the picture of Anthony Hopkins looming around the corner, like standing stock still at the corner with the knife when you think he's gonna go kill um Peggy, uh, because he does look like the dummy, right? He's stock still, his eyes are that sort of uncomfortable largeness. Like that was an interesting moment. I would have liked they were dressed the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And they were often so, dressed the same. Which is, <laughs> yeah. They were. Which is, again, and they get the face, same face. But like on that idea of him being like autonomous or like his own character kind of thing, um, has anyone heard of like the concept of a tul tulpa? Or mm -hmm. it's like people do I don't even think they really exist, but like people, some people believe that through meditation style exercises, they can create like a second independent um like a character like inside their head that has their own thoughts and emotions but it's not like an like sort of like an imaginary friend but not and i was like wow like that really could kind of be like fats could be his own thing like his own um independent character that was generated through the practicing of these magic trips in this cultural um show it's just like a whole weird like subculture I'm sure there are like subreddits actually, about I, it. I didn't out realize there, that's how I, I the did, whole Tulpa thing. Yeah. Yeah, I have heard about that. They actually but, used it in a Batman comic, uh, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. He 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 trains himself to have this primal secondary figure. So when his brain yeah. snaps, he still can function as Batman. It's such a brilliant, mm -hmm. like, you know, yeah. Bruce Wayne ridiculous out there mental gymnastic thing. I, I loved it. Obviously, yeah. It wasn't mentioned at all in this movie. Like it was definitely like played as a mental health issue. Um, or like suppress part of his own character. But like, I'm like, no, that's out there too as a possible think, option for interpretation. And I think, I guess for me too, and what we'll get to, we'll get to Greg and what Jeff actually would recommend, who they, he would actually recommend this movie to. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. but I, I enjoyed this movie, but I think you're right in that there is so, there are so many more concepts to work with this secondary figure, this this icon of humanity that is not human, um, the ventriloquist dummy, that still have yet to be explored, despite the fact that we have a ton of doll and ventriloquist horror films. Um, and I think it's a really interesting tool. And I think there's a reason that so many um, Aboriginal and early civilizations have used totems and icons and things like that to represent you know personalities and powers and beings and things because there's so much there so i don't think we'll ever stop getting those movies but and i think and i actually really enjoy this one i think it's probably one of the better ventriloquist dummy movies however i completely agree that i would really like to see something different 
with it. And this one didn't follow anything different. I mean, and if anybody loves this stuff, I think everyone who does knows the Bobcat Goldthwait episode of Tales from the Crypt, which is a fantastic ventriloquist. I mean, this doesn't go too far from that, um, even though it has less supernatural bent. Um, But Greg, uh, actually, Jeff, let's finish you. Who would you recommend this film as is to? So the movie that I didn't rewrite, the movie that actually was made, uh, I I would uh, really just stick to people who love film and uh, performances, um, which is really just, you know, people who are going to see all the Oscar films every year and stuff. I don't know, this probably didn't get an Oscar nomination, uh, but I think it is that type of film that it must have been like, kind of like, you know, on on the the list or whatever well, it was like like the, like the Joker, something. right? I mean, I don't think that the plot line of the Joker was actually particularly strong, but um, Joaquin Phoenix's performance was, I mean, it was the highest echelon or or one of them really. It was quite quite strong, yeah. um, and I, I agree with you on that front. Greg, who would you recommend this movie to, and why? Well, I'm glad that you've mentioned the Joker several times. And Jeff, you brought up the supernatural. Because um, honestly, I think anyone that liked the Joker, I would yeah. recommend this to them because I saw this as existing in the same universe in my head yeah. canon. And this is a ventriloquist Scarface origin film. Yes, um, exactly. I was going to mention that. <laughs> especially because at the end with um, with Anne-Margaret, with, with her character, I, I loved that bit where she's kind of calling out to him like, oh, like, hey, I'm coming by. Like, let's make this work. And she kind of tries her own voice out for Corky. Yes. And in my head, yes. I'm, you know, since they ended on kind of that, like, what happens next? I'm like, she goes in there and it, it just, it snaps her immediately. She's yes. like, oh, my God. And her only thought is, well, I can't let Corky be destroyed. So she takes Corky and takes up the mantle of... Yes. The ventriloquist, the ventriloquist with, with Scarface. Scarface, and, yes. I um, 100% was going to mention that because for Batman fans or people who don't know, of course, Scarface is the uh, mobster wooden ventriloquist dummy who is uh, handled by the uh, mild-mannered, I think he's actually an attorney, uh, yeah. like an accountant, uh, the ventriloquist, who's super mild-mannered, but the puppet is violent and crazy and a mobster, and he runs this gang syndicate, even though it's so crazy, and they do all these fun tricks um, with him in the comics, where is he real, is he not real, who knows? Absolutely, and this film really, to me, felt like a prototype of the Joker um, in many ways. I think that um, the... the I, I would be I would be honestly really surprised if Todd Phillips, who directed and, and, and assisted writing of the Joker, if he did not see this movie before. I because, also, um, oh, yeah. I, was gonna, I, I, I thought as well. It's um, the Joker is another film that doesn't quite understand mental health, and so one hundred percent, one hundred percent. And well, we'll get maybe we'll get into this one day with the Joker. <laughs> yeah. I think the Joker didn't actually, and I'm a fan. I, Batman is is my jam. And yep. all the Batman universe, and I enjoyed the film, and I was waiting for it, and I, I really did enjoy it, and the performances were super strong. But as an actual narrative and as a script, it did not work cohesively to reach any sort of clear conclusion. I mean, Todd Phillips arguing that, uh, no, it's very clear what happened, and uh, essentially, if you didn't get it, you weren't paying attention. I'm like, no, you can't just tell us that certain things didn't happen, and he was imagining it. If there's no clues, then. Sorry, not not the way it's gonna. I mean, be. I mean, Todd Phillips' real answer was to get what you fucking deserve. So exactly, which is which is totally his thing. He literally, I believe, he literally in an interview was like, "I just am really excited to fuck with fan people 
of the joke. And I'm like, which is I'm like, interesting, because I'm pretty sure you just fucked with all of us when you made due date. So, all right. Um, and, back and, to the topic. Back to the topic. <laughs> what, and, what, what movie? <laughs> and just, just um, as a note, this this movie, um, Anthony Hopkins, he did a little TV movie um, after this, but then the second year, uh, he did The Elephant Man, um, David Lynch's version. Uh, so, and and we of course talked uh, about The Elephant Man a little bit when we talked about um, uh, partners uh, because of John Hurt playing The Elephant Man. So, uh, I mean, this this was really i think the start uh i would argue it's the start of anthony hopkins superstardom even though the film is not particularly well remembered in most it's really good it was it was a lot of fun to watch people who watch film would have seen this in 1978 and they would have been you know looking for him to be in in stuff after this i think there's there's no way that uh this performance didn't uh and he's he's nearly something. I mean he's he's the focus in just about every scene. He's not a main character who's not there a lot. There's only a, a, a less than five I would think scenes where he's not the fixture. Um, okay, and that comes to me. Who would I recommend this movie for? Um, I think you are all absolutely correct. Um, the solid performances, um, a psychological drama. I think that uh, the one the the one strongest argument that can be made about the uh, in in sort of defense of the film about mental illness is that. I think we do feel for Corky, um, even if we don't necessarily like him. But sure, it's absolutely just just like the Joker. It's a shorthand of mental illness as a trigger for psychosis and violent outbreaks. I mean, there's there's no way around that. Um, I do think it's a little cathartic that way. But then through the film, by the end, it's no longer cathartic because we've seen the horrible, uh, you know, recompense that he's reaped right through these actions. Uh, but yeah, I really liked it. And as a ventriloquist lover and like a dummy and a, and a puppet person, um, watch it. Uh, Fats is one of, he is now one of my absolute top ventriloquist dummies in film and media um, because he was strong. He looked crazy good. Um, and it just breaks my heart to think that his versions are locked in a trunk somewhere in some prop house or in some you know producers back lot like that that breaks my heart and if anybody knows the location of any fatses please let me know and i will certainly rescue them and give them a good home they're all at anthony hopkins house he just uh writes operas for them all day he just has them sitting along every time and he just practices he's like so what do you think about transformers i didn't see it you didn't see it nobody else did either yeah um okay that's in a lake full of dead bodies oh so many dead bodies yeah he did not he did not weigh them down very well at all i would give him that they kept coming back up all right um so we're gonna move on to the next film the next film that we have is as i mentioned at the beginning of this podcast a real rarity it's called um it it came from Uranus. It is from 2012. There is another film from, I believe, 2007 uh, called It Came From Uranus. It's another low-budget affair that is not this film. You would know the difference because this one is 100% starring puppets. It is sort of like a, a, a Muppets homage. It's not as vile as uh, Peter Jackson's Meet the Feebles, which is a lot of fun. It's more like a a kitschy homage to 50 science fiction movies um, with lots of puns, third wall breaking, and like I said, puppets. Um, it was, it, it's a Canadian film, so it's overall fairly nice, uh, but it, 
we'll talk about it. This film, track it down if you can, search the forums. Um, I'm trying to find a solid source where people can get it, but it's, I think it's worth seeing as a cult film and we're gonna discuss why. Um, I'm gonna summarize it this way. Uh, a couple of aliens from uh, Uranus, uh, but it's always pronounced Uranus in this film, are coming to Earth ostensibly to uh, harvest methane gas from our farts because they need it and they're running out and their planet will die without it. So they're going to unleash a special gas uh, into the a space gas into our water supply, which will make us uh, fart. Things go wrong. Instead, it makes belly button lint that becomes sentient and tries to collect into a giant mass to then uh, terrify the human race into being enslaved, at which point uh, one of the Uranus aliens can then use his new methane and slave army to take over Uranus. So uh, we have a group, uh, a handful, half dozen people or puppets who are sort of um, wise to the plans of the aliens and they go through like a shocking amount of 50s uh, sci-fi shtick plot twists in order to get to the ending and, and save the earth from the Uranus aliens. Uh, there's a lot in this movie and it's a real strange beast. Um, it was, they tried to Kickstarter it, uh, or rather they tried to Indiegogo it uh, for $500. Clearly they were already going to finish the movie and just wanted a little extra bump. They only got, I think, 75 bucks from two donors. So it wasn't hugely successful that way. Um, it, I believe it aired at several film festivals, including probably the Hamilton Film Festival in Canada. Um, I think they probably got pretty good reviews, but again, uh, Poor Fishy Films was the production company that uh, only made a couple of shorts and this movie, and they are no longer present. So I found this at a, at a thrift store, and uh, I couldn't be happier. Greg, first, what was your expectation going into It Came From Uranus? I mean, I, I honestly, I didn't expect to laugh. Um, <laughs> it was pretty low. I was like, you know, I'm sure I'll, I'll get a chuckle, but some of the jokes, I was like, that's a really good fucking joke. Like, yeah. that's solid. I'm like you said, I mean, so much of it was puns and there was some sophomoric humor. Um, but like all, all the names that Rocco calls his girlfriend, <laughs> girlfriend. like Alice. I think I, I wrote down, um, Crater Crotch. Crater I think Crotch one, was the one, one that stuck out. Yeah. Um, yeah, there there was some there's some good bits, and I mean it had a plethora of comedy for different um different uh, folks. And full disclosure, Greg and I wrote um, uh, a, a musical that has yet to be produced, and and the music has yet to be written. Um, sort of with with the idea that it was uh, like um, Dog Sees God, sort of a Charlie Brown. Um, take that is officially not Charlie Brown, but it would be Charlie Brown. And in this case, it's officially not the Mario Brothers, but it is based loosely on an idea somewhat similar to the Mario Brothers. I think starring. it was inspired by the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, mostly. Yeah, I think, and 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 so this, I was when I was watching this movie, I was thinking about that script because it's very much the same. It's ridiculous. It doesn't take itself seriously, but it also doesn't take the audience seriously. No. Um, <laughs> at all and, and I, I didn't know what to take because the poster says thrills chills fart jokes and that's not wrong um jeff what was your what was your thought state when you went in to see this film i didn't have the i didn't have like a dvd with like this cover on it so like i thought it was kind of like a serious production 
Like, uh, you know, like this was a, just something that I had never heard of. You thought it uh, came from Uranus was a serious <laughs> production? I don't know. There's some weird <laughs> named films out there. I don't know. I didn't mean like, you know, I mean, like, I, yes. not like, uh, you know, black and white hand puppets made by, you know, some dude in blank Canada. In Canada, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so like, I was just like, at first, I was like, oh, this like first scene. It's like, oh, this is like, uh, this is what this is going to be. And so, you know, my expectations started like in the middle and then they went right down to the floor. And then uh, they came back up again as I was like, oh, okay. There's there's some intelligence behind the... uh, uh, the writing it's not just fart jokes it really had it's really weird because i really did eventually completely get into the groove of the movie mm-hmm. um and i wasn't at first even though i love puppets so really they could have done anything it could have been a silent puppet movie where i had to read puppet lips which is impossible uh, and i would have probably <laughs> been down um, i'd have been like that's a 2.99 well spent um <laughs> Yeah, I heard a challenge there, so I need to. Uh... <laughs> uh, okay, it's like sign language, but through the puppet, you have to the, you have to do it at like the the right frequency. It's, <laughs> it's uh... Uh, all right, all right. Uh, that's some physical humor that does not play on podcasts. Mandy, what was your expectation going into this movie? My expectation was an hour and a half of fart jokes, poop jokes, all the kind of butt jokes. That expectation was met. I was very happy. <laughs> Body humor is my favorite. So, I mean, as many movies as you want to watch on this theme, I'm there. I was sort of, I was happy too because I was, it's like, okay, where is it going to fall on the crassness scale? Is it going to be like fart and duty jokes like Sarah Silverman where it's very childish, but also can be edgy, but childish? Or is it going to be like, you know, Cranky Acres, um, late night, you know, um, animation where it's borderline vile piles of vomit being sucked up through your bum hole and become poop, you know, like that sort of level of heinous. And it really is more the Sarah Silverman and probably even a little lighter. Like it's something like, it's like the one fart joke that DreamWorks will put into their animated movies, but spread through an entire feature. Um, and it was charming. And also as someone who doesn't usually like fart jokes, there was so they really do kind of throw a dozen puns at you a minute and eight of them can just hit the ground but as long as four land i'm happy right it's 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 sort of the 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 intelligence of of wise comedy you know like joan rivers would throw a million at you a few only had to stick um to entertain you so um i was Everything about this movie um, sort of surprised me in quality, um, except the voice acting. I mean, these are not professional voice actors. Um, they are sort of one-time people. Um, the person who one of them the- drew me fucking nuts. Oh yeah, uh, was it the was it the girlfriend? Alice, Alice yes. the girlfriend. Oh, yeah. Why was she talking like that? Um, <laughs> yeah, holy yeah. shit, it was really horrible. It, she was. Or, I'm sorry. Is it Wanda? I can't remember. I think it's Wanda. Yeah. It, I no, thought Wanda was, was the yeah Wanda's um, the barmaid or the diner lady. Alice. Wait, um, I, I feel like at some points they mixed up names or said stuff weird, <laughs> and I have. was like, yeah. who, who are we talking about? Yeah, so I don't really know. Um, so weirdly enough, this is a very strange thing. the The character of Alice is not actually credited on IMDb, which is a little odd. Yeah. Um, 
because everyone else is credited on IMDb in this film. So I don't know who, uh, I'd have to look again at the, at the, uh, the actual credits in the film. Um, so I don't know what kind of bad blood went on there. Maybe that was the true uh, nail in the coffin of poor fishy films. But let's, let's just listen here to this, this clip of the opening with the two uh, aliens from Uranus in their spaceship uh, looking down over Earth. Uh, here we go. So that is sort of the level of voice acting that one would expect uh, in a a YouTube debut sort of amateur video. Um, and, and you get it through the whole movie. And the problem, the key problem is the pacing of it, right? It's, you know, it's not professional voice acting because they're sort of reading a script as they go. There are some who are better at it. Um, the, the writer and main producer of the film who plays... Um, the lead, uh, Rocco, is, is, I guess this is not the leader, uh, my bad. Alan Jeffries plays Rocco, and he does a good job. His accent is ridiculous, but again, we're talking about puppets uh, in the imaginary 50s in a small Canadian town called Ed Woodville in Saskatchewan. So, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it ruins the film by any stretch, but the the pacing of the speech is sort of like me stuttering right now. It took a very concerted effort for me to sort of fall in rhythm with it. So it didn't bother me so much. And absolutely Alice, the girlfriend's voice, who is a main character and present to the entire film is skin numbingly, like gum bleedingly bad. Like, I don't know what bodily ailment appropriately matches it. <laughs> But she talked so slow the whole time. Bless her, it was it was not the best. Uh, and she also lost her accent a little bit. And I'm like, did somebody else dub that line or did she just forget how she spoke? That said, um, there were some great jokes in there. I also, listening to it, it's a little, you don't get the full effect of seeing puppets say this. Like the, the Uranus puppets look like something from um, the earliest episodes of Sesame Street on a budget. Like they, they're not bad, but they have little fur manes and a little fur capped eyeball stock that just bounces to the side on the top of their head. And, uh, and I, it wasn't, I wasn't sure what to expect because everything looked good, right? Um, but it just didn't, the first four or five minutes maybe are on a spaceship overlooking earth and I get nothing else. It wasn't until after that initial scene where we actually get to the planet, we get the, the heavy banter with lots of puns uh, and we actually get to see some radically different looking puppets um, that it really kicked off for me. So I could see where if this had been released direct to video wide scale, you might've had a lot of haters who were like, I can't even watch this like right off the bat. Um, I don't know if anybody else was that way at first before falling into it. I think Jeff, you said that you kind of felt that way. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's bad. 
I mean, it's, it's real bad. It's like, I even did this thing where like, it, it, like, don't do this. If you make a film, like they, they'd like have music in a scene and then they would fade it out. And then they'd have like the screen faint played. You, you got to like blend your scenes together. It was like, it was like watching like a skit. And then there's like another skit that happened after it. It was, it's like so jarring. It's like, just don't do that. <laughs> it's just like, mm. So it's like, it was like real jar, but like the scenes lasted so long that like, uh, or the you know they were almost like a series of skits at this yeah, point yeah they don't change yeah. they don't change sets a lot and actually sort of it reminded me it made me wonder because i guess the people who made it are veterans of local film festivals and i would hazard to say performance festivals because it seemed to me like this could very easily be turned into a stage show right because you stay in one set for a very long scene like maybe there's only six or seven different places like scenes like we and you don't go back and forth that much mm -hmm. you go to the diner a couple of times um but other than that you really when you get to a new location you stay in that location um there was also a point where i didn't even realize that they changed locations um they go to rocco's apartment there's like um you know bottles in the background and things and it's just kind of a a, a dump and uh, I didn't even realize that they'd gone to his apartment until later when they said it. Um, looking back, it makes total sense. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but looking back, it, it fits. Um, I, but thinking back, like when we've reviewed fan films, like uh, The Legend of Zelda fan film, The Hero of Time, where those were huge continuity errors that made it difficult for me to understand what was happening. This didn't have that. Um, the only time there was something that was really confusing was when uh alice's character thinks she's pregnant somehow and it turns out that she's drinking the tainted water which makes her belly button lint become a monster so we think it doesn't really come to fruition but she gets a rash on her belly and they see the doctor who tells her she's pregnant later he dies in the middle of the diner and is like that's the same rash as i have and you're like wait you have a rash you've never mentioned a rash before <laughs> in the entire film so they cover it. They sort of do this backtrack and you're like, oh, okay, but that's a weird way to tell a story. It's sort of like you would do that in person if you're telling a joke and ruining it. You know what I mean? Like, well, like, well, how about the fact that the doctor who improperly diagnosed her pregnancy <laughs> wasn't able to figure out that her sex was actually male. Male, yes, like, she's a biological <laughs> like, male. Like, which I... I up until probably that point or when they finally revealed who the secret alien was like that right there, which I think that's like three quarters of the way into the movie. That's when it all fell apart for me up until then I was having fun. <laughs> I following I, like, the plot. Like the <laughs> yeah, I was, I was following it close enough to like, I was just going it, from fart joke to fart joke. Give me my next fart joke. Give it to me. But yeah, uh, but like I was thinking, yeah. this should be a drinking game. Like this is just meant for it. It's like if you want to, if you want to get like buzzed, that'd be a good one. Like every time somebody farts, you drink. <laughs> this, if uh, if you want to get like drunk, drunk, you you say every time somebody says it came from Uranus or uh, uh, space gas from Uranus, you drink. If you want to get blackout, you just any butt related joke 
or anything comes out, you'll you'll, you'll get blacked out from that. I, I think you would need to just to start the movie off right. Finish your drink as soon as um, I wrote down this line. Um, overpower your anus with an iron fist. Like not even five minutes in, and I'm as soon as that that was the joke that pulled me into the film. I was like, you know what? Okay, like I'm here. Uh, I'm I'm living for it. Yeah. Here the thing. So okay, there are a couple of moments that I absolutely love in this film. I, I think part of the thing that where you were saying, Greg, you were probably like you got lost or it just it lost you the effect. Yeah, lost it, you. It, it just got too much. Well, and that's because they they have like they get through sort of the when you do a satire um, or really if you do um, just a straight up um, uh, a ripoff, <laughs> I guess, but a satire of something. There's two ways to do it, right? You have it where the whole overarching theme or, or like relative plot is similar or pays homage to this other thing. Or you have it where like you follow things beat for beat. Um, and this film like does both. Like it does the overarching thing for the first two thirds of the movie, maybe, maybe even three fourths. But then that last little bit is crammed with like all of these 50s shticky plot twists. Like we get, <laughs> Um, like we have that the the long scene, which is an homage to the thing, um, both the original and the remake, where like one of them is the alien, right? They don't do a blood test in this one, but they check everyone's belly button because a clean belly button clearly could not be an alien somehow. I don't really understand that logic, but that's okay. Um, but that's very clear. But then we get hit with there's on the radio we get this little foreshadowing of the the um, was it brown bag bandit, someone who run which by the way has one of my favorite puns in the whole show there one of the guys then turns out to be an undercover private investigator that's 50s twist number two i love that bit he's looking for um a random uh, uh criminal who just so happens to be in the area that's plot point number three of the 50s movies um the the, the criminal is the brown bag rustler who runs into supermarkets takes the brown bags shoves them down their pants and runs away and the they ask the question what what crime is that rustling <laughs> and i was like that is my favorite pun in the whole thing it's so stupid and it's brilliant and for someone who loves uh like the ridiculous skits of like drag queen legends and things like that like this those moments just made me so happy and um and and that's so that's what three 50s homages plus they keep um that one of them's the alien and oh also it ends in a cave that is 50s requirement for a science fiction movie always ends in a cave uh and then the, the fifth one is that uh the brown bag bandit is actually the girlfriend that we knew from the beginning who is also dun, 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 the long lost brother of the private investigator unbeknownst to him so that's like depending on how you count it four to six like ridiculously common 50 shticks that they cram in and they do not come into play they maybe foreshadow a couple of them but they don't come into play until that last third or fourth of the movie and it's too fast um they have some funny jokes but i feel like it actually is too much to take in at once and that's where i was like wait where what are we doing again why are we in a cave like i do need to know a little bit of why we're there um and I think that's probably what, what you're talking about, where you're like, meh, the, the, the whole concept sort of fell apart for me. Yeah, I, 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 
think maybe the the problem is that three fourths of the way through they they decided to have a plot yeah. and and it yeah. was far too late we'd had too many puns too many fart jokes i wasn't here to figure out whose twin brother shoved a bag down their pants and was actually a man the whole time and i just i didn't give a shit i i will say that i was when that reveal came I was both intrigued, but also terrified that they would be really unkind to trans people, yeah, as often happens. Yeah. But I have to say, they, they actually weren't. Uh, I didn't feel like, she, she actually has this line that's like, at the end, like, what did everybody learn? It's like, I learned that um, what you are on the inside, that it doesn't matter what you are on the outside, what you are on the inside is important. And you're like, okay, that's actually a very, uh, a, a sort of a trans recognition, right? Like, I am a woman inside so it doesn't matter if i have a penis right i identify as a woman and then you get the the the, the sort of jerky uh main character guy his her girlfriend is like i guess i found out i'm into dudes little little maybe insensitive but he's he stays with her he's like yeah we're getting married I, still you even though you now have a, a more masculine voice now that you've done this reveal which by the way the masculine voice was much more tolerable than oh, the female impersonation yeah. voice um, so I was actually kind of surprised I'm like I feel like this is actually a relatively pro gender identity ending because they didn't they didn't make fun of it it was a plot point that was goofy in and of itself and I guess in that sense you could say it was sort of making fun of it but i don't think that i didn't feel like they trivialized it any more than they trivialized i don't know marriage plot coherence <laughs> um gestational distress uh yeah i don't i don't i don't know that any of that um was was really shockingly well there it is uh, 2012 the year that uh trans rights were finally solved and, well it made it happen i was like this happened in 2012 and um it's actually based off of the the filmmaker's original live action movie um which isn't listed on imdb it's this is the thing imdb is a very large the internet movie database all film lovers know this um this website it is the first place to go but there are so many small films fan films personal films that just never make it on there um and we lose those to time and it, it actually is so sad to me because there is a film version of this starring live action people that i can't see because it's not listed anywhere uh, except in some minor notes in weird, obscure online web archives. So interesting to know. But yeah, 2012, I was like, man, Canada is so much nicer than the US. Like in 2012, uh, you know, that's that's eight years ago. Um, everyone was still laughing at the end of Ace Ventura. Okay, like that is how untrans friendly uh, we were. Uh, and 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 kind of are um, you know it's still a huge a huge issue. So I thought that that was a nice and surprising thing, and just reminded us of how Canada, you know, uh, unless you're Aboriginal, Canada's not so good with them. Uh, but neither are we. So okay, back to the point. This film, lots of jokes, lots of fart jokes, tons of the third wall breaking actually came in so early in the movie that. I think that's Greg when I decided that ooh, this can't have a solid plot because they're 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 not gonna pay attention to it, so I'm not gonna pay attention. And then when plot reveals came, I'm like, wait, what? That's I where's the pun? I need the puns. Um Mandy, I know you enjoyed this film, which makes me happy. Did you have like a, a favorite moment? Oh my gosh. Um I really, really enjoyed um, the Martians or the the aliens, not the Martians, the aliens 
and the fact that their names sounded like farts. Yeah, um, and the like hero really is like, like any of the interact. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. his name. <laughs> yeah, his name is. So um, any of their interactions together, I really enjoyed that. Um, less the, the so head, the evil alien is Galaxit. Ga excuse me. Glass, Galaxas, Galaxus. It's very hard to say. It's Galaxus, but mm -hmm. with ass in it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Galaxus. Yeah. I'm developing a speech impediment just trying to say the name properly. Just, yeah. Yeah. So I think those are my favorite parts. Just like the alien puppets were really pretty hilarious um, and cute looking. Um, like the human parts. Like I also was annoyed by Alice's voice and the way that that was done. Um, I really liked the scientist that was actually a janitor that was going to go to scientist school. <laughs> yes, I he hadn't that taken was... the scientist test yet. Right, you know, as an engineer, I like really enjoyed that. I thought that was really like a cute part of it. Um, and it like overall it just kind of felt like something that I might stumble on, like on YouTube, as kind of was mentioned. I was really hoping it, this was, film would be on YouTube, but the trailer is, but the film is apparently not. Yeah, and it was just like fun and campy and like low stress. And yes. It was really good in I, that way for, you know, what it was. I also really enjoyed, there are so many background gags in the sets they put together for this, because these are full sets. Like, I was sort of unsure um, what to expect because I was thinking well you could do um, still frame sets and a green screen the whole thing like you just have you know drawn images which would could have been cool but they actually built sets and um, there's like and I guess a lot of these are from uh, poor fishy films previous shorts but there's funny things like there's in the doctor's office in the background which is under a bowling alley so you constantly hear bowling sounds um, there's a cereal box for tobaccos um, there's a uh, uh, there's like uh, beer bottles from yard sales. There's, there's um, the, the doctor's office has a um, eye chart that says, my nurse steals money from my, and then I couldn't read it. Yeah. Like, and, and there's a tip jar with change in it in the doctor's office. And the cotton ball jar says puffy white things. Like they put a lot of effort into these background pieces and the diner has them too. Um, it's just, and also, they sort of revel in the their Canadian identity. So there's like um, Nova Scotia license plates on the table and like all of these little bits of, of Canadian things that sort of crab me up. One of the characters, the one who's a private eye uh, is undercover as a uh, uh, ridiculously super, a stereotypical French lumberjack, uh, like a Montreal lumberjack. And mm -hmm. it's, and, and what about, so the film ends and they realize that like at the very end that everything is great. Oh wait, um, the scientist or the to be scientist was beamed to Uranus and like, we gotta go rescue him. And then it gives you like, and so then they go off and then it gives you like this still frame, like follow up for every character. Like he was rescued and he became a great inventor and blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, we wish you could tell you all that. And then the next one is like, everyone died in a car accident on the way out of the building, <laughs> except for Billy, the kid who was an orphan who grew up to be, like that was, I actually thought that was fantastic, but I was a little, I was actually like, that's a little sad. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't think I was that invested in this ridiculous puppet movie to find the <laughs> thing, but I, I really like the They're testing you. Yeah, I, I also really, really enjoyed that. And um, like no one had mentioned this orphan Billy 
you before through any of this discussion. And God, fuck he Billy. Is, <laughs> he is what bothered me the most about this oh. whole movie. Oh. Like, I just wasn't bothered by much, but like the crying in the background oh. that went so, on for like. So basically, 10 you were minutes. excited when he got shot. Repeatedly. We were all excited when he got <laughs> shot. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I, on this, you, you gave us these nice sheets to write down, you know, strengths and weaknesses of the films. <laughs> I immediately, as soon as I heard that, I started writing under weaknesses. This kid's nonstop fucking crying. And then as soon as he got shot, I just drew an arrow up to strengths and wrote that kid <laughs> getting shot. Like, <laughs> well, it's kind of brilliant, right? Because it's like. This is one of the great things like, that you do in film is you make the audience feel something and then you make them, like, I guess in this case, like, feel okay with the horrible thing that happens next or whatever. In this case, we all get really annoyed just by the noise of this kid crying and we're all like, yay, he just got murdered. Which is like, it's like, it anymore. it's like 10 minutes. Oh, like, it's literally like a 10 long, minute scene. And long time. every time some, some new reveal or accusation happens, because it's during that thing style scene, like <laughs> then the kid screams again and the crying never stops. And I'm like, this is the longest. I so respect them for that because it's that whole concept of taking a joke so far that the audience hates it to the point where then we start to like it for a split second, and then we hate it even more. I think you know? it's just a theater of cruelty, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. Well, it's like, okay, so the uh, one of my favorite podcasts uh, that I suggest everyone listen to is um, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. Paula Poundstone and Adam Felber uh, have this podcast, and they, for, what, two years now? Or, uh, over 100 episodes have kept some of these ongoing jokes going since the very beginning. They hit every single podcast to the point where sometimes they will read letters from people writing in with like I just don't think this is funny anymore and they're like well you don't have to listen and I'm like it makes me so happy because as a, as someone who likes to make things as so many of us do it's that it's that it's like that picture of George R. R. Martin flipping off the interviewer who asked him what he has to say to kids who say finish the books because you're gonna die soon and he just flips <laughs> them off like, it's just such it's like um actually, I don't do this for you. I do it for me. And they go so far to actually anger. I mean, my wife and I were watching this and she was doing something else. And I was like, is that kid still fucking crying? <laughs> and yes. And then when the scientist then pulls out a gun and is like, I can stop the alien. And he shoots and he just shoots the kid. Like the entire the entire that, gun he just unloads. That bit was I mean, really they, good. Like, oh, oh. That I, was I, a big I, clip. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it was a revolver and it had like 50 bullets in it somehow. And and actually that is that is number depending on how you count number 5 or 7 of the 50s clichés there afterward when he holds the gun he's like what do I do now? And he's like throw it at the alien. And he's like that won't do anything. He's like sometimes it does and he throws it and it hits the alien and nothing happens and the other guy goes it's it's like invincible. It's indestructible. It's like, um, it's, oh. I, I did to follow up with that, um, Nathan. Your bit about like um, comedy that kind of skirts that line of it's annoying, but it's funny. But it's annoying, but it's funny. Um, I, I like to refer to that as the Borderlands style of humor. For anyone that's played those games where they, yeah. they go, aren't fetch quests fucking annoying? Here's a fetch quest. Isn't that funny? <laughs> and there's literally a joke in this where someone's like, like, oh, like another tired ass, like 50s reference cliche. Isn't that hilarious? And I'm like, 
I guess. I guess it's funny if you know how not funny it is. And I guess I would just curious what you all thought about those jokes where they, they're like, this joke isn't funny. Isn't it? Isn't that funny? It's like so self-aware that you're like, you almost get angry at them. Yeah. But like, but then you're like, but I respect you, but I hate you, but I respect you, but I hate you. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Okay, apologies to any listeners who hear a weird, like, beeping or ringing in the background. Um, I'd like to give a shout-out to Dell, who designs <laughs> computers to have faulty fans, and the warning for the fan going out is a horrendous five-minute cavalcade of the most atonal, non-harmonical, like, non-harmonic... It's worse than my fire alarm. I literally thought the building was coming down the first time it happened. So thank oh. you, Dell. Why don't we just pitch he, he, he Dell? Just, he's lying. He's this whole. He was just recreating the scene from the film where the, the <laughs> computer made a really annoying sound. He paused the recording and then he went and shot it with I machine shot it gun for times. like five minutes. I was gonna say Dell could just use the audio of Billy crying and just put that in. <laughs> and and let's let's talk. We're we're gonna talk. There's still some things to talk about. Billy, when they're in the cave. Uh, actually comes back as an adult with acne and bald, okay? Which, pretty accurate to most people that I think <laughs> would be capable of developing time machines to take them back. He's a, he turns out, he said, no, I didn't die. I just fainted. <laughs> Love that. Love no explanation. Like, um, it made me, so many moments of this movie, that plus the, uh, the credits at the, the, the like still shot images with the follow-ups after the, the, the last scene, uh, reminded me weirdly enough of um, the Val Kilmer, Robert Downey Jr. vehicle, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang by the guy who released the weapon, where at the end, it's like uh, Robert Downey Jr. is like, but actually uh, he was shot, but uh, he was alive and everything was fine and, and he's going to be okay and the doctor says going to be great. And he's like, I know that sounds like a cop out. Why don't we just bring everybody back? That guy's back. That guy's back. And they all walk in the room and he's like, but I'm not because that didn't happen. Only he's okay. And then everybody walks back out. Like, it's just that weird fourth wall breaking, but also like, it's sort of like, hey, you want to see something funny? And then they take the plot and they just break it in half. <laughs> and, it's, and I love it. And, it. and it was great. And then he tells them, just remember, I got to warn you, take the long road. And then after everything's set, then it just shows him again, like, oh, no, I meant don't take the long road. And then that's how they all die in the post credit scene. Or, I mean, the post you know, ending scene. <laughs> um, so Billy is like this annoying character. And then he's. And then he seems like, oh, he's had a great life. He's an inventor and he's like all this great stuff. And then they're like, just kidding. He's still a piece of shit that you don't like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Jeff, you mentioned uh, when we were off, off recording, because uh, that's when you tell me your best ideas, that, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, uh, that, uh, that the credits were some of the funniest, funniest things. Yes. Uh, yeah. So like uh, one, of the, one of the jokes is, is you know, at, at the end is, if uh, anyone in this film, uh, you know, resembles anybody in real life, you know, it's purely coincidence, you know, especially since they're puppets and puppets are different than people. <laughs> like, just, my, my type of uh, humor there. And they, they go on to like, you know, spoil uh, like Star Wars and stuff. And yeah. Like, you know, Cause it's supposed to be in the fifties and they're like, you know what? Yeah. It's his dad. Enjoy Empire. Like yeah, they tell back. you to go to the library because it's the 50s and like the internet is, doesn't exist yet. 
and there's and there's an opening credits too that's very 50s because there's not that many people that worked on this movie yet the credits both at the end and in the opening are very long um and the credits roll after the the um the aliens from uranus are are shown sort of like releasing the gas onto the planet um and they're perfect 50 style like original roger corman and pre-roger corman productions um like uh just rows of names um and they're virtually all completely fake and jokes including sound effects uh by um what is it e-internet and uh things like that and then it's like knock knock and then the next line is like who's there and then it's like uh banana and then it does banana mm-hmm. like fucking four or five times and then after the credits finish then one more pops up that says aren't you glad i didn't say banana again and very uh, movie. holy grail money python space balls yeah i was yeah. getting the whole the whole gamut um on that and I guess even when I thought the, the jo- a joke might not be that great, um, I, I totally respected how many, I mean, it, you don't, as a comedian, everybody works differently, of course, but most people, when we write jokes, we don't, in order to get that much material in a scene, you have to rewrite and add and add and add. And that's why so many um, films have punch-up writers uh, who are often not credited. Um, like Patton Oswalt has done this a bunch. I did this. Where you go in and you, uh, you take a script that's done and they're like, we need some witty banter. And you throw that in. Or we have side characters off here and they need to have funny lines. Um, sometimes those are like ad-lib lines, but oftentimes they're not. And you see those all the time in films like, Anchorman, you know, when when uh, they use the the insane cologne and someone runs by going like, it smells like Bigfoot's dick. Like that, that might've been ad-libbed, but also that's what a punch-up writer would do, right? They'd write those jokes. And that's why they bring them in because a fresh set of eyes can put in a whole new layer of jokes. And this script had many, many, many jokes. Um, too many to count. Like I guarantee you, it's like riff tracks from Mystery Science Theater. I could watch this again and hear things that I did not remember or did not recognize at all. And that I totally give him props for that. Um, the, the other thing that uh, I thought was interesting is, did anybody else notice the insane breasts they put on um, Wanda, the um, diner lady? Like she's supposed to be like, they give this moment where it's hard to see because they only have them in a couple of scenes where they have it low enough. They gave her, visible bra straps and then she has literal like felt covered cups that are like on her chest and it is very funny but also super confusing to the point where i didn't get it that those were breasts until um the scene where she comes into the laboratory on the edge of town and um the scientists want to be like ogles her and you think they're going to have a romantic moment they actually gave her these. So if you, they don't show it in a couple times yet. It just showed me. I'm like, one, giving a, a Muppet breasts essentially is difficult, apparently. And two, uh, there's a lot of detail that went into each puppet that we don't actually see. Because I feel like I don't think the cinematography totally gave us time. Like we never see most of the puppets full on. Yet most of the puppets have legs, including like the doctor when he dies on the when he dies on the floor in the diner by the way i love how they didn't remove his arm handle the the stick that he's moved with <laughs> yeah it just left it too and i'm like i don't know if that was an intentional joke but it did make me laugh so we're gonna we're gonna get to to the end here um i i do 
certainly hope that everyone does their best to find this film. At least go watch the trailer uh, for for uh, It Came From Uranus 2012 on YouTube and, and uh, try and find these folks because it is, I think this is a worthy film to watch. It was uh, written by Ken Turner uh, and directed by Paul J. Bresti. So we're going to go reverse here. Greg, who would you recommend this film to and why? Um, you know, honestly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I did uh, in the previous time where movies I'd rather be watching, um, which was basically everything that I was picking apart from this of, of like, you know, I saw bits of the actual Muppets movie in here. Mm-hmm. I saw bits of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I saw bits of Spaceballs, especially at the beginning when they're, they're monologuing about like what they're going to do to the planet. And all mm-hmm. I can hear is yeah. like, and thus destroy planet Deridia and save Spaceballs. Everyone got that? Like very reminiscent. Um, that said, if if you like that kind of irreverent humor, I mean, I'd say at least give this a watch. It was funny. It it had some some bits that fell apart, but it it it, it hit so many types of comedy, good or bad, that I think at least you'd find something that makes you laugh. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree, Jeff. Who Here's what you you're gonna do, us? people. Are you gonna- <laughs> If you have an anus, go to your local Goodwill. If you can find this, get it and make all of your friends watch it. And then you'll have something to talk about and it'll be a good time. And uh, yeah, do it. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out there. If anybody knows uh, the individuals who made this film, let me know. I would love to find a way to get this film released through somewhere. I got connections, people. I got connections. If, if anybody doesn't remember, uh, I already kickstarted several se- uh, sequel features thanks to this podcast uh, that uh, I don't have the time to remember what they were. Mandy, who would you recommend this film to and why? Well, since everybody poops, I think everyone should see this movie. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to say this. Uh, Jeff and Mandy are brother and sister, as we've mentioned before. And um, I knew that Jeff, at least, would, would enjoy the film. I, I didn't know Mandy's relationship with, with fecal matter and feces. But oh, we're the same I, person, but I, knew, I, I don't know I, yeah, I did you... know that. I knew Jeff's because in high school, when we would go do things, oftentimes Jeff would be in a crotchety mood in the morning when we went to do something. And he'd be like, well, I didn't get to BM. I'm like, okay. I don't know, that seems like something that could be remedied where we're going, but apparently that was integral. And I think many of us probably feel the same way. Um, but what we don't generally do is um, say, uh, oh, I feel so good today. I had a great BM. I'm like, mm. this, is, this is something that an 85 year old man might say. Mm. As I started sipping. young. And Every time at, at like at dinner when I was younger, it would be, uh, you know, as soon as our, our family dinner was uh, done, I'd be like, oh, time for my after-dinner crap. And, and I'd head well, on off. That's because your favorite meal was X-Lax and milk. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. Like, ah, yeah. you, can't, you can't drink milk, asshole. Trying uh, to make fun of me. I can't. I'm yeah. so <laughs> Um All right. Who would I recommend this film to? First off, anyone who loves puppets, weird kitsch, um, uh, if you've seen Peter Jackson's insanely perverse take on the Muppets, Meet the Feebles, maybe we will do that on this show at some point because it is fantastic. But if you like that kind of thing, watch this movie. Not as edgy as that one, but certainly worth a view. Um, really, find this movie and, and find the people who made this movie and get them in contact with me because I will give their creation 
the respect it deserves by releasing it to all of the crazy sleazy people that we know and love listening to our podcast. So thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Cult and Classes. Thank you to all the panelists. As always, the chud is going to play us out. You can visit us uh, online at cultandclassicpodcast.com, Facebook, Instagram. You can visit the chud at facebook.com slash the chud band. And uh, please leave reviews on uh, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, uh, Pod Addict, any of those things. Leave a review. Let us know. Screenshot it. Send it to us. We'll send you a little gift and uh, enjoy your day. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.